There is no single pathway to entrepreneurial success. Most of the entrepreneurs I've interviewed on this podcast have gone through unique ways to reach their goals, but there are similar milestones along the journey. There are common questions every entrepreneur should address as they build their business. How do I find an idea I should pursue? How do I validate the idea? How do I build the product? How do I launch it? How do I find and reach customers? How do I grow revenue? and scale? How do I build a community around my product? How do I build a team that we execute? How do I raise money? These are the fundamental questions every entrepreneur should be asking. The Hustle Bootcamp program will help you tackle these questions. The Hustle Bootcamp is an intensive five-week online program for high-performing individuals who want to build profitable, scalable, and fundable business in Africa. This is not your average online course. It is a coaching program. Everything in the course is designed towards enabling you to launch your new business or innovate an existing one. We are prioritizing transformation over information. There are five models in the program and they will be delivered over video along with worksheets, action plans, and step-by-step guides. But more importantly, every week during the program, I'll be hosting live office hours Q&A where we'll be breaking down key aspects of the course. And I'll have some of the guests from this podcast in the live Q&A. If you really want to build, scale, or get funding for your own business, this is the program for you. Registration is now open and we'll be closing it very soon. We have very limited seats. Go to thehustlebootcamp.com. That is T-H-E-H-U-S-T-L-E bootcamp.com. Thehustlebootcamp.com and register now. The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. In my view, one of the most important and the most impactful things that anyone or any organization or even any nation can do is education. Investing in the human capital of the country. There's nothing more important than that. Yes, I can have a nice, comfortable job, well-paid, but then so what, right? I always feel that there's this spreading of responsibility that, hey, to whom much is given, much is expected, so. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. My guest today is Timothy Courtin, the co-founder of Superfluid. Superfluid is a data analytics company. They help businesses to make sense of their data through predictive analytics, business intelligence, and dynamic customer insights. Superfluid is the type of company that will help Africa to leapfrog into the future by leveraging on its existing data for decision-making and product development. Timothy is a nerd. He studied at some of the top schools in the world, uh, Harvard, MIT, and he had an MPhil Engineering for Sustainable Development at Cambridge University in England. But beyond this academic exterior lies one of the best stories of human resilience, beating the odds and thriving through optimism. Timothy represents the possibility of what can happen when opportunity is widely distributed across various corners of the world. It's a pleasure to have him on the show today and I'm super grateful to Akinyi Ocheng of Africa Expert Network who made this introduction, without whom this episode wouldn't have happened. Timothy, welcome to Building the Future. Thank you so much for having me, Dutton. Yeah, it's great to have you actually. First of all, let's Let's start with what is Superfluid? What is it that you do as a company? So Superfluid Labs is a technology company which has a simple mission to expand opportunity for people and for businesses through the power of data. Globally, especially in Africa, but also across many emerging markets, there are many people who are disconnected from the formal economy on one side. On the other hand, you have a lot of businesses that really would love to serve these underserved markets with more services, more goods, but they're not able to do so because of 
consumer risk, they're not able to do so because of operational inefficiencies. We believe that the presence or the emergence of data now makes it possible for businesses to act intelligently, to understand customer needs, to manage risk, to predict customer expectations, and to successfully serve a previously underserved market. And this is what Superfluid Labs is all about. So we develop technology solutions that enable businesses to take advantage of data they may have internally, data that their customers could have on other platforms or data from partners to allow them to develop better services, better solutions and expand opportunity really for people. So the assumption is that a lot of these companies have data anyway, and you are trying to help them to unnash that data and utilize it. But in some places, especially in Africa, a lot of companies don't collect data. So how do you overcome that kind of challenge? Excellent question. So what we actually have is a multi-pronged strategy. One prong of the strategy is to work with organizations that already have a lot of data internally. You help them use that data better. The second prong is actually to help organizations to start to capture data. Organizations that are not capturing data, we have tools that enable them to capture data, digitize operations, digitize customer interaction points. And then the third prong, which is a long-term strategy, is that we would also acquire data independently, which would now become a repository for organizations that want to serve customers and they don't have any data themselves, they can tap into that repository. So I really want to deep dive into this. There is this fundamental reasoning, which is rightly so, that data can help you with decision making. It can help you know what kind of product you should be building next. It can help you understand your customer and how to interact with them and how to serve them better. It can help you in building the right organization. And that is that assumption that a lot of people who have interacted on understand data know that. But there is also that majority of the companies in Africa that are small scale businesses, they don't understand or they don't know the need for that kind of data because they've been building their business using maybe their gut feeling instinct or being reactive to a lot of things. The question I'm trying to ask is about uh, making them to understand that need and also it has to do with the economics of this. If I don't know the value of the data that I produce or that other people will give me, what would convince me to want to use your service and I know that your service is not free, what would convince an, a normal everyday company to want to use the service if they don't know the importance of the data that they have? That's an excellent question. So what we actually believe is that organizations don't wake up looking for data analytics solutions or they don't wake up looking for IT systems. They wake up looking for ways to better serve their customers, to provide more services and to make money. And we think it's not going to be different in our case in terms of business intelligence, data analytics. So it, the challenge rests with Superfluid Labs and it rests with technology-driven companies like us to offer solutions to problems in ways that people understand. So I'll give an example. Imagine there's a retail outlet that sells everyday goods in Nigeria, okay? What they want is a solution that helps them sell more to their existing customers to reduce their operational losses and inefficiency. They don't care how it has happened. They don't care that they're using machine learning, artificial intelligence, big data. In fact, if you start talking that language, you are confusing them. So one of the design challenges that we have to overcome, and it is common for many organizations, is really to think about what job we are trying to help the end user, in this case, the business achieve and developing a solution for that and communicating that solution to them. So I'll give an example. We are working with some banks that are trying to offer financial services to customers that are unbanked and they have no relationship with them. Our pitch to them is that we can help you manage the risk associated with lending to these millions of individuals in various communities across the country that you would previously not be willing to or not be able to lend to them because you can't see. That's the pitch. So for the clients, what they hear or what they understand is that this is an opportunity for me to grow my market share, my customer base, make more money. This is an opportunity for me to 
reduce the risk associated with lending. So it's a framing thing and you frame the outcome rather than what the, the tools that you are using because data is a tool exactly. rather than uh, exactly. just telling about the technology. Exactly. That is correct. This will become especially important as we try to go downstream with our services. So our desire is not to use data analytics to help just big companies, but also the small corner shop. We would love to help them. But it means as we go down stream or to small organizations, it is even more important that what you present to them is a solution. So I'll give an example. Some corner shops use various points of sale devices, right? What they would love is a solution that says this point of sale device that you are using to do your everyday checkouts, which they understand, is also helping you with customer relationship management. It's also helping you to automatically send reminders to your customers to get them to come back. It's also helping you to profile what items are in stock, what items are in demand so that you can do your inventory management seamlessly without that organization feeling like they need to engage you a long consulting process to understand what is going on. What they really care about is a solution. And I think that is the challenge, especially in Africa, that technology entrepreneurs, we would need to overcome. That is taking a step back from the technology that we are working with and trying to frame and position and even design our offerings as solutions that are accessible, easy to use, easy to adopt, even by people who may be illiterate or have minimal formal education. So talking about product design, and I think you hit a very good point there about how we're framing this, both in terms of the value proposition to the customer, but also the way they interact with the product itself. So talking about a product design, walk me through how your product actually works and how do people engage and use your product? You gave an example there about maybe a corner shop in a downstream where they have a CRM or they have a POS, but that POS gives them a lot of information about their customer, the usage frequency, and all the stuff. Is your product and the way it is now or the way you're envisioning it to be, is it going to be a software that people subscribe to or is it going to be embedded into their everyday tools that they use like the POS? Great. It would be embedded into the everyday tools that they use. So we have a product roadmap. Currently, the current evolution of our technology platform is mostly focused on larger organizations. So imagine you work at any institution that deals with data or has a lot of customers. The way you interact with our solution is you log into a specific URL once you go to work. And then on that web page, that dashboard, you are presented with various insights about your business, about your customers in real time. You can see exactly what is happening in this location versus that location with this sales agent, how they are performing this week versus last week versus last month, how they are performing versus the industry. So you have almost like a Bloomberg terminal, but for an African business, but for an, a business in an emerging market. Are you talking about small scale business here? Or? I'm talking about larger enterprises. Larger enterprise. So Which is the initial focus we have of what you're doing now okay um we also yeah we also do work with a number of startups fast-growing startups uh, but here the appreciation for data the appreciation for analytics and what they can do for their business is more sophisticated and as a result we're able to work with them Uh, that said i mentioned that we have a roadmap and our roadmap is to continuously simplify our technology and frame it as solutions that will now allow us to go downstream to the corner shop where they may not understand even a username and a password but just because they're using the pos device behind the scenes we can still apply all the machine learning magic and predictive analytics magic to help them to be more successful so let's talk about the solution that you have now which you called um like a bloomberg terminal so your customers are banks and financial institutions that can afford to pay for it and they needed those analytics what stops them from using other alternative platform have there like bloomberg that you mentioned for example or optimove or other solutions that will give them the same solution Excellent question. So a couple of things. The first thing is that our platform is very flexible in terms of it is very easy to integrate this platform with your existing silos of data. What we found is that a lot of organizations have silos of data. They may have some data with the marketing team, some data with customer service support, some data with finance, operations and IT. And there's not a single view of all that data. 
there are many technology vendors out there who would offer you a large data warehouse infrastructure project. You pay them a lot of money, millions, sometimes to build a data warehouse to integrate everything before you can start to see value. The difference with our tool is that our tool is able to integrate into these existing systems and silos, almost like a small layer that sits on top of everything else. And we're able to pull all those inside. And as a result, we're able to do this at a very low cost. So you're cheaper. Much cheaper. But we are also extremely valuable because all the use cases that we focus on are very much aligned with demonstrating or generating a return on investment for the client. So for almost every single one of our projects, you can actually quantify the value of adopting our tool uh, to you relative to the cost. And this is not a case for a lot of large projects. Okay, talk me through how it works, actually. Is it like a SaaS model kind of thing? And then the second question to that is, I want to get some more information about how integrate into the others solutions and where they get the other data. So they've been marketing data or maybe their sales process data or maybe their logistics data or operational data. How do you integrate into that? I assume you're using some kind of API. And in places where the API, where they're getting data from, it's not digital, where it is much uh, like, a lot of companies will be a lot of their data in Africa will be non-digital. How do you capture that and put that into your own uh, system? Uh, great questions. Let me give one example. So one of our projects is with a pay-as-you-go solar company. This company is in Sub-Saharan Africa, East Africa. They've been very successful. They've sold solar home systems to about 100,000 plus customers. They approached us with a problem. The problem they had was that they wanted a way to better predict customers' future payments behavior, their credit score, more or less, so that they knew which customers to give solar home systems to on credit. Because these units are not cheap. They're very expensive. And once you've given, you've gone to a particular community, which might be in a rural area, you've installed the unit. If the customer stops paying, it is very costly to send someone back there to even go and take it back, even if you want to do that, right? So the way this project worked was that they gave us some data. So initially, we did an assessment of all the data that they had available on their customers. So they had data from the customer center, how often customers call, whenever there's an inbound or outbound call that is locked. They had data on when the customers first joined their service. There was an application form that you have to fill, name, your location, your age, um, other information about you. They had that data. You also had payment data. The customers were paying for this service using mobile money. And each time they paid, it was credited to the account. So that transaction log was available. So in the first part of the engagement, we did an assessment of all the different data sources that uh, this organization had. We took it offline. We built our models. The models generated predictions. They actually tested the predictions in real life over a period of time. And once they were happy with the outcome, our solution was now deployed on top of their infrastructure to integrate with the source of new customers registration data to integrate with the call center data so that now on an ongoing continuous basis they have an intelligent system that tells them this is the status of this specific customer. This is this customer's predicted behavior over the next three months. This customer is at risk of churning, leaving your service. Send someone to visit them, call them, send them an SMS reminder. And in that, you're using predictive analytics yes. to do that. You're always collecting data yes. on an ongoing basis from that customer. So the first part of the question that I asked previously was about, is it a SaaS model and people use different package depending on the data they're using? Is that how it works? Yes. So we have two modes of deployment. One is on-prem. It's a SaaS model. One is on-prem. So we can deploy the software within your infrastructure on-premise, and then you pay an annual license for it. The second model is completely cloud-based. So we found that some organizations, especially with startups that are fast-growing, prefer to integrate into the cloud. The software is now run on our service, which now is even lower cost for an organization to adopt the solution because they do now need an on-premise system that they need to maintain. Or Why would someone need on-premise? It's a combination of reasons. So uh, very often for very large organizations where they are dealing with massive amounts of data, transferring that data by connection to a remote server somewhere and back and doing the analysis can be very time-consuming very costly. That's one reason. Second reason is that for certain regulated industries like financial services, there are data protection laws in many countries and it's growing where there's a need for the data to be resident within that country or within their physical 
premises of the organization. So it's a combination of factors. But we have the flexibility of deploying our solution in different modes based on what an organization prefers. And I assume most of your customers or clients at the moment are in Africa. Yes, all our clients are in Africa. All of them are in Africa. So what is your pricing model like? Because I know that businesses like yours outside the continent, they do charge upward of $100,000 per annum or more than that and how are you able to do that and what's your pricing like sure so uh, i will not be able to speak to the specific amounts but uh, i would say that it's really a wide range so we've had projects where it's gone from lower tens of thousands of dollars per month or per annum for the entire engagement right and then oh so people pay for an engagement is it like a project-based engagement again it really varies it depends on what the organization wants right and we've also had engagements where there is over hundred thousand dollars it's a recurring annual licensing fee once the solution is deployed so it really depends on where an organization is so let me give an example okay imagine i have to a black box that is able to predict you have customers some of the customers are defaulting some of them are paying on time and my tool can help you double your revenue for example okay what is the value of that tool to you as a business if you are a small business that today your revenue all your revenue is just five hundred dollars per month it means I'm only taking you from 500 towards 1,000. So for you, the real value is not that much, which means that as a business, we can also charge more than the value we are creating for you. However, the same scenario, there's another organization that is seven millions or hundreds of thousands of customers and their revenue is $10 million a year. If the same tool is helping them double their revenue, you can see that the value being created for larger organizations is much greater. So one of the things we have deliberately decided to do initially is to, yes, work with smaller organizations as well, but also start with organizations that we believe have a certain scale. And so the impact of our work is significant for them. And then as we build more scale, more customers, we move systematically downstream and work with smaller organizations, small organizations, small organizations. And that is the approach that we are taking. So your pricing is dynamic based on the revenue or the size of the impact that you're making. The size of the impact is one component and then there's another component that is based on the complexity of the project. So for example... So it's a project based, not SaaS then? Think of it this way. There's a license fee for the software. However, there may still be a need to do integration into your existing databases. And that varies from one organization to another. So one organization, they may just have one main database system, which is, let's say, a core banking system. Another one may have 10, 15 different database systems in many different countries. And so that is more complex and there's more cost. So pricing really can vary depending on the complexity of the engagement. But the underlying cost of the software license more or less stays same okay i want to go into your story and how you got into this but before then i wanted to help some of our listeners here we'll be talking about data predictive analytics and machine learning you also talk about artificial intelligence at some point i wanted to help break it down (laughs) especially the big uh, term being banded around big data and the impact of that on businesses what is the importance of having data and all those terms and terminology underneath it and machine learning artificial intelligence and um, predictive analytics and all those stuff can you break them down and talk about data as a whole and big data as a concept sure Um, Where do I start? Let me start with uh, artificial intelligence. (laughs) So artificial intelligence is this idea that we can teach or program computers to exhibit intelligence in decision making in a way that is similar to what a well-trained or a well-knowledgeable human being would do. I'll give an example. Let's say there's a marketplace. If you know that in certain countries, I'll give Ghana an example in some markets, it varies, but Wednesday, for example, is a market day. So Wednesday, because Wednesday is a market day, a lot of goods that are brought to the market, the prices are lower. As a human being, you have this knowledge in your head. And as a result, if you want to drive sales or demand on that day, you may offer a discount or you could send a reminder, tell your customers, tomorrow I have stock, so come. Now imagine that we could take data on customers' purchasing habits, how often they come, what days they buy. So Monday, this is the amount that people bought. Tuesday, this is the amount that they bought. Wednesday, this is the amount that they bought. And look at it. It is possible that looking at what happened last week, 
last month, last year, last three years, we will find out that there's always this trend where every Wednesday there's a, an increase in buying habits for customers. So if we can program a computer to detect these patterns and take intelligent actions based on that insight, that is an example of artificial intelligence. I'll give another example. Maybe this one will be more common or more more accessible. Email. Very often people get emails. Some of the emails automatically classified as spam and it goes into your junk. Why is that? How does that work? Well, the way it works is that a lot of email samples were acquired and the email samples were flagged. Okay, this is a good email because it came from this person. This email is suspicious. When you read the body, you can see that this is a spam email. Somebody is telling you they're prince, the support of gold. They're typing in a certain way. So a lot of email was looked at and was classified okay this is a good email no this one is fraudulent this is a good email this is fraudulent this is a good email this is fraudulent now a special computer algorithm okay just say computer software which we call machine learning is able to be trained that this is what good looks like this is what bad looks like this is what good looks like this is what bad looks like after that training exercise you can now apply the trained algorithm, which we call a trained model, to a new email. So now when a new email comes in, that model is asked, is this a good email or this is potentially spam? And depending on how well the software learns during the training phase, it can now say this is a bad email, so it automatically pushes it to your spam folder or your junk folder. So this is an example so, so of machine learning where you have some data of what happened in the past and then you use that data to teach a software program. This is this. This is that. So normally, computer only reacts to whatever you tell it to do, right? So uh, when I was learning computer, is this what you put in is what you get out. And garbage in, garbage out. Garbage out. That. So computer only work reactively based on what you tell it to do. So you can do calculations on computer because computer can process those information very very fast and then it comes out with what you wanted it to do so what you're talking about is a machine learning enables computer to learn a particular pattern past patterns mm -hmm. and predict future behavior based on that historical patterns Excellent. that it has learned Excellent. and especially if it's a repetitive behavior or repetitive steps or process a computer can replicate that and, and come up with a conclusion or a new pattern based on what has happened in the past so and anyone can apply that to some of the tough stuff you talk about what are predicting sales or predicting processes in a factory so computer helping to do factory work or processes is not new but computer making future decision mm -hmm. based on past information is what artificial intelligence and machine learning is about right correct you, you, and, you, and then we'll, you gave a very good go summary on. of it and i'll even add one small clarification or uh, addition which is that once upon a time you used to have to write the rules for a computer step by step one by one a very clever person had all the rules in their head and you just encode them and the computer will do exactly what those rules are with machine learning the computer can now learn from the data itself with some guidance of course but it can learn from the data itself and sometimes the computer software is so good at this learning exercise that it's even better than what a human being can do why because it can process really faster than it can humans process really fast it can deal with a very large volume of data so for example a human being cannot analyze tens of thousands or millions of documents but the computer can do that in just a second and instantly have all that information instantly find all the patterns or the trends and instantly have the rules and that rule those rules are what's underpin uh, artificial intelligence. So if we extrapolate that and push it to uh, its logical end or further on, that means computer can do almost everything that humans can do, especially if it is based on steps. So for example, we now know that computer can drive a car. So you have self-driven cars that the computer is striving and understanding the patterns of the road, human behavior on the road, and some of the things that we cannot assume that computer can do in the past. Computer can do that. But now I was thinking recently that a good pushing of that boundary is Computer flying planes, yes. right? So, I mean, flying planes is one of the safest mode of transport anyway than cars. And I was thinking, oh, are we not exploring that? That instead of having two pilots flying or even a pilot flying, why not just have the pilot flying five or six planes? Because computer is self-driven plane and a pilot is just sitting down... <laughs> 
in an office and monitoring the because once you get up yeah. there i mean there are very few okay so maybe maybe there are a lot of things that can go wrong a yeah. lot of people don't know that many modern planes actually are equipped with autopilot feature yes and so for a lot of flights for a significant part of the journey the pilot is just monitoring they are not really doing anything yes and that is and that's been on for a long time. Exactly. So that one has been going on for a long, long time, right? But then applying the artificial intelligence and modern technology mm-hmm. artificial intelligence where the computer can make some of those decisions that a pilot have to make. So for example, if there is turbulence, which is not expected mm-hmm. on a flight, the pilot can make a decision. Or if there is somebody making, or if there is maybe somebody who is having trouble or having or causing problem on the plane and the pilot is informed, the pilot can make a decision to land the plane, emergency land, in in another airport, something like that. Will computer be able to make that kind of decision? It's a very, very interesting and profound question that you've raised. And it's definitely something that we can discuss and debate for a long time. So I'll touch on a couple of what the issues are. One of the issues is really around, is it technically possible? In many instances, the answer is yes. In some instances, the answer is not yet because we don't have enough of that historical data to train a computer. Once we have enough data, the answer will be yes. In some instances too, the answer is not yet because the computers we have today are not fast enough to decide very quickly enough the pace at which we require. But then there are other aspects as well which border on ethical issues. So for example, if a software is an autopilot for a car or a plane and there's an accident, who is responsible? Is it the pilot who was supervising the five or six planes that the software was controlling? Or is it the person who wrote the software in the first place? Or is it the person who provided the data that was used to train the software? Or is nobody responsible? You see where I'm going with this? Yeah, I, I get it. And I think that's one of the questions that I, I get asked every time I throw this idea up about accelerating artificial intelligence. But I, I want to drive it home because a lot of people are listening to these uh, business owners in Africa and some of them outside the continent as well. I want us to explore. I mean, some of them are a bit theoretical exploration here because you interact a lot with this kind of uh, subject is what can machine learning, artificial intelligence, because when you mention it to a lot of entrepreneurs in Africa, they just said, oh, that's just far away. I mean, I have to think about getting my customers and actually validating my business idea and making money. All those artificial intelligence stuff is not for Africa yet. I'm assuming that that's not so, that we, there is a lot of advantage of using those technology to be able to make decisions to reduce costs, to improve efficiency, increase revenue, and help us make a decision about product. Can you talk me through some of those use cases of artificial intelligence in business, especially small businesses in Africa where they can be used? We may not have it now, but where it can be used in the near term future? Great question. So I definitely very much believe that artificial intelligence has huge potential for Africa. If not, I will not be doing what I'm doing. <laughs> um, so in terms of small business, one of the key use cases that I see is around customer relationship management. So today, if there's a corner shop in my neighborhood and I go there and I buy regularly from there, the owner of the shop might know my face. They may see me every now and then, but I'm not really being getting any bonus, loyalty, any credit for shopping there regularly. In the same way, if I'm home and I haven't gone there for two months or three months, why can't the owner reach out to me and say, hey, Tim, you haven't come to my shop in a while. What is happening? Do you need something? I actually have a discount today. Are you interested in that? These are things that today a human being can do if you have a small corner shop and you have a limited number of customers that you know very well personally. But with artificial intelligence, this capability can actually be deployed at scale to the benefit of many small businesses. So imagine if Each time you go to a shop and you pay or you buy something there, that action or that interaction is digitized. It means through machine learning, we can train an artificial intelligence system that would realize that, okay, Dotun hasn't come here in a while. Let me automatically send him a reminder or let me automatically send him a 5% discount or offer to encourage or to attract him to come back. Or even let me send him a birthday message because today is his birthday. Just to build that loyalty, that sense of connection. These are very simple use cases that, if applied correctly, can really digitize and strengthen a lot of informal activity that is today happening manually. But now that can be taken over by software, by artificial intelligence. So the question would now be, how do you integrate all of that? Because, hey, a lot of them are using, maybe not using POS, 
POS business in Africa is so fragmented and the integration is going to be hard and it will invariably, if you're able to crack it, and it will make it expensive yes. beyond what an SME can pay for. That's a very good question. I actually think, and this is the challenge, not just in Africa, but it's a challenge that every business needs to solve. You need to create more value than you're trying to take. If I am a small shop and you come and you offer a digital payment solution to me, yeah, there's the convenience argument maybe, but if at the end of the day, the extra revenue you're helping me get or the extra business you're helping me drive is not greater than the cost of adopting your solution, whether it's a POS system or CRM or whatever, it won't make sense. So I'll stop using it. And now this is where I think there's an opportunity whereby the providers of various solutions, whether it's a POS system or a payment system, need to now think of other use cases, other services that you can offer based on the data that you are now collecting. And so if you are able to offer other services, whether it is this customer relationship management like I've described or reminders or, or whatever, then you are able to generate value that is now greater than those transaction fees that you may be charging or the initial cost of the POS. And so for the small business, it will make sense because our people are not stupid. People are not stupid. People don't choose one technology or the other, not because of ignorance. We oftentimes mistakenly think people are ignorant. It's not because of ignorance. It's because they don't perceive that the value they are getting is greater than the costs. The inconvenience. Yeah, and I like that. It's a perceived value as well as the real value, right? So we might, as a product owner, as an entrepreneur, is building a product and technology product. We know or you understand the intrinsic value of that product because you are the one that conceived it. You can see the efficiency. But if people don't perceive that, yes. no matter how much you think <laughs> it is good, um, it can take them to the star. It can take them to the moon. But they if they can't it. perceive, they feel it. it. They have to experience it. And sometimes that also takes time. I'll give an example. Mobile money is really taking off in a number of African countries, really wildly. But it's been around for over a decade, and it took a long time for that trust to be built. Initially, people will send a little bit of money, they'll test it. Okay, it works. Okay, you send money to the village. Okay, it works. We're happy. Then slowly, as the trust in the service increases, as confidence in the service increases, that this is not a fraudulent system. People start sending bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger amounts. And it's very, very fascinating to see. Yeah. So let's go into your story, um, which is a very fascinating story about how you got into this. So I said at the beginning that you started in Harvard, MIT, and Cambridge, one of the top schools in the world, top five, actually. But your story is fascinating because you started from the north, north of Ghana. Talk me through that journey of you escaping, your family escaping death, and then finding yourself in Accra, and then finding yourself in Harvard. <laughs> I'm from Ghana, as you know. Uh, I was born in the northern part of Ghana in a big city called Tamale. Uh, that's where I grew up with my family. But in the early to mid-90s, unfortunately, there was a very bloody ethnic conflict in the northern part of Ghana, including Tamale and other cities. And it was really so bad that thousands of people really lost their lives. Many people had to flee their homes. Many people had to abandon all their possessions. What was the cause of this ethnic violence? Uh, there's been historical ethnic uh, misunderstandings, really, tensions that have brewed for over many, many decades, if not centuries. And uh, unfortunately, something sparked those tensions. And so there was an eruption of violence. Um, so my family actually had to leave our home. I remember one day I was at school and uh, my mom, who was a teacher at that school, came to fetch myself and my siblings. We literally went home, picked one or two clothes and just fled and eventually made our way to a military barracks where we were for a few weeks. Long story short, it was a very traumatic experience. At this time, I was around six years old. But long story short, my family made its way to Accra, which was in the southern part of Ghana in the capital. And we essentially we started life anew with nothing from scratch. But God being so great, through the dedication and the care of my parents and through hard work, went to school, studied hard. Somehow, uh, I was able to put that trauma behind me. And uh, How did it affect you as a six-year-old? Were you at any point at a risk of death yes. during that oh, process? Yes, 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 definitely. I mean, I try not to go into so much <laughs> of the detail, but we were very much at risk of 
about it. I mean, the day that we escaped, so many people lost their lives. People were killed in the middle of town. I remember at some point in the journey when we were on the way to the military barracks, there were massive crowds of people who were stoning military vehicles, burning people alive. I mean, it was really bad. These were neighbors who have been living together side by side for a long time. Same religion? different religions sometimes the same it's really unfortunate but the truth is it really goes to show how much misunderstanding can really destroy a lot of social values social fabric economic value in the developing world in africa right and this was one of my motivations as an individual in life that how can i having been fortunate to have escaped alive with my family through this experience how can i give back because i consider myself very blessed very fortunate not always deserving of it um so if i've gotten a chance like you're saying to study at harvard or to study at mit and cambridge yes i can have a nice comfortable job well paid but then so what right i always feel that there's this burden of responsibility that hey to whom much is given much is expected so i needed to be personally fulfilled and personally happy i felt that i had this responsibility to use my talents to use the opportunities have been given to try and create more opportunities for other people to create services that improve people's lives to drive development because it is also the case that a lot of conflicts comes about when people don't feel they have enough when they don't feel they are secure in themselves when they don't have access to adequate development opportunities and so uh, being able to create services that expand opportunities for people and for businesses it's in a way in my opinion one way of contributing towards a more prosperous society a more peaceful society let's talk about how you came about those opportunities you found yourself in accra where your family moved to in the late 90s and you started all over again according to your own words and then you managed to get into some of the top secondary schools there was it through examination or was it a scholarship or was it that your parents just find a way of enrolling you to that school? Yeah, so I actually went to a local public school uh, called Adenta Community School, which is close to where we lived. They did the, um, and at the end of middle school, we call that junior secondary school in Ghana. Let's see, that's ninth grade. At the end of ninth grade, you take a national exam. And you get into secondary schools that you select based on the ranking system, based on your grade. So I was very fortunate that I got perfect grades after middle school. And so I got into one of the best uh, boys secondary schools in Ghana called Pesek. And that was an all-boys school, uh, also a public school. So I attended Pesek. I studied science. I've always been very interested in science and math. So I studied science and math over there. Also, again, through hard work, through good teachers, I was fortunate to do very well. Uh, in fact, I represented the school in a science and math quiz competition. Uh, we won. I also got a chance to represent uh, Ghana in some international physics competitions as well in Singapore. And throughout this period, after I had finished secondary school, I really knew that I wanted to do something in science, specifically in engineering, because I love building things. I love solving problems. And I felt that if I am going to pursue a career in this space, I need to give myself the best chance of success. I need to try and place myself in an environment environment where I'll be able to learn from the best, where I'll have the tools to experiment, to build. And so the idea of studying abroad came to mind. And so I applied to study in the US, applied to a few institutions. I took the SATs as well. And um, again, I did very well. I got a perfect score on my SATs. And so that opened the door to a number of scholarship opportunities. And that's how I ended up in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts at Harvard. And then at Harvard, I was able to also take courses at MIT as well. And that was a very, very wonderful opportunity. I never saw that coming, but... So you were best scholarship, right? You got scholarship because you scored a very good point. And one of the questions I, I did ask you before, and I want to explore that again, which has to do with maybe fate in terms of the crisis that happened in the northern part of Ghana and that moved you to Accra. Um, do you think you might have gotten those kind of opportunities or that exposure and if your family had stayed in the northern part of Ghana? Ooh, that's a very good question. It's something I think about a lot. And actually... I don't have an answer for sure, but I suspect that I most likely would not have had as many opportunities. Maybe I would have even missed out on some of the opportunities. So I'll give a good example. 
the U.S. Embassy where you apply for a visa, they had an educational advising unit where you can go and learn about U.S. schools and what they can offer. It's only in Accra, in the capital. And so... But people can travel well, from there. it's a long commute, maybe many days. You can't go there often, right? And I went there very often, sometimes multiple times a week because I was in Accra and it was close. So if I was far away in another city, I don't know if I would have been able to take advantage of that opportunity. So that's one example. So I definitely think, I mean, I believe that everything that happens in life happens for a reason. It might be a temporary setback. It might be a challenge. It might be a hurdle. But you learn from it. And in fact, I think that experience has very much helped me also in the entrepreneurial journey. It's not been easy. We started Super Food Labs about three years ago in 2015. And we've had a number of <laughs> setbacks, ups and downs, the usual roller coaster in the entrepreneurial journey. But having experienced some challenges in the past, endure them, overcome them, it really builds one's confidence, gives one hope, one optimism that even when you're in a difficult situation, that there's light at the end of the tunnel, that tomorrow might be a better day. And it gives you strength and optimism. And that keeps you I think there's a conclusion I want to draw there, which is that uh, maybe you agree or disagree with this is, so there are lots of smart, smart people across Africa in different villages, but who are not given the right opportunities because of the fact that they were born in a particular place. So opportunity is not evenly distributed. And I wonder what we can do to make that happen, to get those people to have the right opportunities. Some of them might be studying in Harvard, might be able to build the kind of companies that you are building if only they were given the right opportunity at the start. And I wonder what can be done intentionally Uh to make, to give them that platform and that opportunity. That's a very good question. I think, in my view, one of the most important and the most impactful things that anyone or any organization or even any nation can do is education. Investing in the human capital of a country. There's nothing more important than that. And so, to that extent, creating opportunities where regardless of someone's economic status or their family, regardless of their geographic location where they are born, which people don't choose, um, they can still have access to a good quality education. They can still have access to a fair chance of success in life if they put in the hard work. If they are in school, they study, they have a chance. If they are in school and they study and they do well, they have a fair chance of getting a job, not because of their geographical location. So I think it's one of the most impactful and most important things that we can do as a society. And different individuals or different institutions have different roles to play in that. If you're an entrepreneur, you can develop education technology solutions in that space. In fact, my first business was in the education technology space because it's really something that is very dear to my heart. And one day, I actually hope to have a scholarship program as well to support needy students so that financial means doesn't become a blocker to your ability to participate or to access certain opportunities. So we have a very long way to go, but it really starts with recognition by all that education, human capacity, development and investment is so, so, so critical. If I may add, it is even more critical in the age of artificial intelligence, in the age of big data, because a lot of jobs that we see today may no longer be there in 10 years. And so what are the new jobs going to be? Are people in Africa or emerging markets going to be jobless? No, we can't let that happen, right? So what opportunities, what skills do we need to empower people with so that they can create a livelihood for themselves, so that they can participate in a global economy? And I think these are the questions that really should be top of mind for anyone who has a stake in the future. And I think that is all of us. You mentioned the other time about the fact that you could have gotten another job based on your academic background. You, you could have stayed in the state or uh, any part of Europe and get a job and uh, so maybe as a banker or work in some consultancy role. Why did you decide to go and start business in Ghana? <laughs> That's a very good question. So I actually used to work in technology for a while with a big uh, American technology firm. And that was a good job. I got paid very well. But ultimately, it was a combination of two things. The first thing was I always had this burning desire for entrepreneurship. I didn't know that it was called entrepreneurship when I was young. I just knew I liked doing things. I liked being involved in one project or another. I enjoyed the hustle. I enjoyed overcoming the challenges. I enjoyed working with other people. I enjoyed solving problems. So there was that. But the second thing, which I touched on a little bit before, was that I really thought that, wow, one day if my life is over, let's say I am 
in my 60s or my 70s and I've retired and I'm looking back at my life and the, the opportunities that I got and the challenges that I faced. Do I want the story to be that, okay, this is this guy, he had this opportunity, he studied at these institutions and then he had a good life, made a good paycheck and that was it. And I thought that story would be so underwhelming, so boring. It's like I, I didn't give back because I really genuinely believe that a lot of people have sacrificed my teachers in elementary school friends, people giving an encouraging word here and there to give me the opportunities that I've had up until now. And so I really genuinely felt this burden, this responsibility to give back, to give back to society, at least to try to do that. Even if I failed, at least I know that I tried, right? It wasn't because of want of trying. And so that was really what gave me the boldness to say, you know what, life is short anyway, just a few decades long. And so I might as well do what I feel deeply within my heart is important and will be impactful. So it was born out of giving back. But if you won't want to explore that, then you could say that why not start a non-profit organization rather than a business that is fundamentally trying to solve problems but make money in exchange for that problem that you are solving? That's a very good question as well. And in fact, it's something I thought about. I've thought about a lot. In fact, when I was in university, I actually started a non-profit, which was a 501c3. Uh, certified on profits with a few friends of mine in Ghana. And it was great. We were working in the healthcare space, raising money, supporting various courses. Um, but one of the challenges that we learned at the time, this, we were teenagers, early 20s. We didn't really know much, right? One of the challenges that we learned is that it's very difficult to create sustainable impact, to create scalable impact. And through that experience, I personally came to the conclusion that one of the best ways in which you can solve various developmental challenges is if you have a sustainable model whereby there's an economic engine that fuels that good work. Even in the case of, I'll give an example because I'm a fan, the Gates Foundation, right? So my graduate studies in the UK was funded by a scholarship from the Gates Foundation, Bill Gates. Now, the Gates Foundation is one of the largest foundations in the world, doing a lot of very important philanthropic work, right? Around healthcare, agriculture, whatever. But a lot of that value came out of the work that he did previously in the private sector in business. And so I think it is not the case that working in a for-profit industry necessarily needs to be mutually exclusive with giving back to society, having impact. Yeah, I agree with that totally, that one can make that kind of impact using the enterprise. Gradually, fundamentally, business are solving problems. And the only difference between that, I mean, not the only difference, there are lots of difference between business and non-profit organizations. But businesses can also make impact, but they're just making money on the back of it as well. So you're doing good and you're doing well exactly. on the back of it as well. Uh, we, do we, good and do well at the same time. Yes, together. We're just getting to the end of this interview and I want to talk about what is next for uh, Superfluid. Have you raised money at all? We've been bootstrapped so far off of uh, client revenues and off of the founder savings but we are actually currently in the process of fundraising. Yeah, once we raise I will let you know. <laughs> are you profitable at the moment? Uh, yes, we are cash flow positive. Great. How big is your team? We currently have a team of 12 staff, full-time staff between uh, Kenya and Ghana. About half of the team is based in Nairobi and the other half is based in Accra in Ghana. you got clients in Nairobi as well? Yes, we have clients in okay. Kenya, we have clients in West Africa, Africa, a few others in other East African locations. So it's a Pan-African yes, business. It's very much. Yeah, it, it desires yeah. to be Pan-African and to be global, to be a world-class global organization based out of Africa. Why not? Yes, I like that. So what is next for you uh, with regards to Superfluid? What are you building next? What, what is in your product roadmap that should be exciting to someone like me or, or your customers? Excellent. In the first two years of our existence, we were building our product to validate the thesis. The thesis was that it is possible to leverage data that institutions in Africa have to deliver value back to them by way of helping them reduce costs, increase revenue, improve operational efficiency, and do so in a sustainable way. We've demonstrated that. Now, 
the focus over the next uh, three to four years is going to really be around scaling our solution to as many organizations, as many industries as possible across Africa. And to do that requires growing the team in terms of talent. So if you are an awesome developer, data scientist, you're passionate about solving business problems, and you're interested in working with an innovative organization, please get in touch with us. So growing our team, growing our products, growing the vision, and most importantly, really making it accessible to organizations because it is true supporting more institutions, more enterprises that we are going to be able to indirectly impact individual lives through direct employment, through expansion of opportunities, and through the creation of wealth. Yeah. Um, I normally end my conversation by asking my guests uh, four fire-on questions. So I'm just going to throw them out and then I'll need you to just respond to them faster with one sentence or two. So are you ready for that? I hope so. Great. So what is your biggest business pain point at the moment? People. Finding the best people, getting the people you have to be the best that they can be and keeping the best people. Yeah, I get that a lot from a lot of my guests. It is getting the best talent and managing them. So it seems to be a lot of challenge for a lot of people what is your number one growth metric being cash flow positive being profitable so what do you measure to be able to see whether you are you're getting close to that is it top line revenue or bottom line profit uh, it's bottom line profit uh, okay so that means you're always tracking your outgoings as well yes. one of the things that uh, you become when you're an entrepreneur if you're a founder or a co-founder of a business you become very good at accounting if you don't you wake up one day and realize the business is yeah because you don't have the money anymore <laughs> Which book are you reading at the moment? Oh, that's a good one. I'm reading a lot of different books. One of the books that I'm reading right now is called The Empowered Manager. It's quite old by a gentleman called Peter Block, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, so that's the one you're reading now. Okay, great. Which business is getting you excited apart from your own business? In Africa, globally? Preferably Africa, but it could be global. Uh, one of the business I'm quite excited about is Andela and their business model to empower young Africans with software development skills. I think that's very exciting. That's good. I like Candela as well. It's a very innovative business model. I can see a lot of opportunities for data scientists, data analysts, um, machine learning experts, AI uh, engineers, uh, kind of Candela model for that, where you can get smart people, first class engineering, first class maths, first class physics graduates across the continent and train them on how to become data scientists and data analysts. I think we need a lot of that and you can then provide the services to other people, whether in the continent or outside the continent, to be able to use them to solve problems with regards to data. 100% agree. Yeah, and I think it's something that businesses like yours can look into oh, as well. Because you, you, you definitely <laughs> Great. That's good. It's good to hear that. Timothy, it's been a pleasure chatting with you uh, and I think I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about uh, data. I've learned a lot about your business and about you and i hope our listeners have also learned as well thank you so much for having me and i look forward to having other conversations in the future great there is no single pathway to entrepreneurial success most of the entrepreneurs i've interviewed on this podcast have gone through unique ways to reach their goals but there are similar milestones along the journey there are common questions every entrepreneur should address as they build their business how do i find an idea i should pursue how do i validate the idea how do i build the product how do i launch it how do i find and reach customers how do i grow revenue and scale how do i build community community around my product? How do I build a team that we execute? How do I raise money? These are the fundamental questions every entrepreneur should be asking. The Hustle Bootcamp program will help you tackle these questions. The Hustle Bootcamp is an intensive five-week online program for high-performing individuals who want to build profitable, scalable, and fundable business in Africa. This is not your average online course. It is a coaching program. Everything in the course is designed towards enabling you to launch your new business or innovate an existing one. We are prioritizing transformation over information. There are five models in the program and they will be delivered over video along with worksheets, action plans, and step 
by step guides. But more importantly, every week during the program, I'll be hosting live office hours Q&A where we'll be breaking down key aspects of the course. And I'll have some of the guests from this podcast in the live Q&A. If you really want to build, scale or get funding for your own business, this is the program for you. Registration is now open and we'll be closing it very soon. We have very limited seats. Go to thehustlebootcamp.com. That is T-H-E-H-U-S-T-L-E bootcamp.com. Thehustlebootcamp.com and register now. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T H E S T A R T A dot com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks. Bye.